Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. And speaking of parents and children, one of the major running topics that we've had throughout the show, throughout Being Well, is the impact of childhood experiences. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family that was basically really functional. I had parents who were basically really loving and supportive, and I grew up in a social environment that was basically really safe. But unfortunately, many children don't have those luxuries. And if you're listening, this might be a good moment to take a second and think back to your own childhood. What were the parts that went really well, and what were the parts where maybe there were some challenges associated with it? If enough of those little challenging moments build up over time, it's possible for them to leave a lasting impact upon us. So today we're going to be talking about that impact, including what we can do to heal as adults. To help us do that, we're joined today by an expert on complex post-traumatic stress disorder, Pete Walker. Pete is a licensed psychotherapist practicing in the San Francisco Bay Area who specializes in helping adults who were traumatized in childhood. He's the author of three books, including Complex PTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. It's one of the most popular books for working with complex PTSD and has, at least in my opinion, become a real classic in the field. It's a practical, user-friendly self-help guide to recovering from the lingering effects of childhood trauma and to achieving a rich and fulfilling life as an adult. And before we get into the conversation today, I just want to say really quickly that we talk about a lot of books on the podcast. And we've been fortunate enough to have some authors on who are pretty well known. Complex PTSD may or may not be a book that you've heard about prior to now, but I just want to emphasize that, again, in my reading of it, it's really one of the best in the field for working with these kinds of issues. And if the topics that we explore during this conversation are resonant to you, I think that you'll really love it. So Pete, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing fine. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, no, we're all kind of surviving right now. We're in the SF Bay Area, and right now, if I look outside, uh, it looks like there's a barbecue going on out there, so I think everyone's a little bit more complicated than normal. We're in the pincers of COVID and forest fires. Yeah, no, between the two of them, there's definitely a lot of stuff to feel a little stressed out about. So maybe speaking of which, a lot of people have heard about PTSD, and most people probably have some idea who are listening to this of what that might look like or the kinds of things that might lead to somebody acquiring PTSD. How does complex PTSD differ from this and kind of what distinguishes it? Three things come to mind, so I'll just throw them out there. Um, I think the most well-known and thing that people with complex PTSD can relate to the most is the concept of emotional flashbacks. And uh, the emotional flashbacks are different in the way that they are a regression or a, uh, falling back into the early past where the complex PTSD developed, which typically is in a dysfunctional family and one that was devoid of love and devoid of support um, and pretty heavy on at least the, neg- the neglect, if not the uh, abuse. And so when a child grows up in a family where there are no there is no one he can trust, no one he can be supported by, he develops this thing I like to call the uh, abandonment melange. And the abandonment melange is 
built on the concept of the abandonment depression. When you're little and you got nobody you can go to for help or support, and in fact, when you can get hit or locked in your room for having needs or having problems or being sad or being angry, you, uh, you're very, you become very depressed. You feel really helpless. You feel hopeless. You feel trapped. And that's the pure abandonment depression to itself. But when that gets greeted, so to speak, by a parental response of anger or contempt, contempt is this nasty cocktail of rage and disgust, which makes a child feel ashamed and afraid. So the abandonment melange is the depression only kind of covered in this fear and toxic shame. And any one of those emotional responses can be in an ascendancy. But with emotional flashbacks, anything can trigger a complex PTSD survivor into a flashback into this painful emotional place. So one of the things that you mentioned for a second there that I just want to kind of narrow in on is that CPTSD is often but not always developmental in nature. Is that correct? Like these are based on events that happened to people when they were children or young adults or things like that. And it was a real accumulation of stress and trauma over time based on events that, generally speaking, happened inside of the family. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, I, I bet that would describe 90, 95% of the cases. People cool. can get it from cults and they can get it from boarding school. There's a lot of people relating to the book from boarding schools, but it's generally a long time process when you're developing, when you're young. Mm. That is one of the other key features of complex PTSD. It didn't get into the DSM two editions ago. So the biggest lights in the field got together and renamed it Developmental Trauma Disorder. And I like both names, and I particularly like Developmental Trauma Disorder because the environment that the child grows up in is so toxic and so devoid of nurturance that the child doesn't get to develop. One of the things that's really awful about complex PTSD is having a really narrow sense of self. Mm. And lately, I've been looking at thinking that there's so many developmental traumas, but I like to kind of encapsulate them in two dualities. One is the duality of relationship with self and relationship with others. And perhaps the greatest developmental trauma is that the relationship with the self becomes as toxic as the relationship that they're experiencing from their parent. And their relationship with themselves is just characterized by this terrible toxic shame, self-blame, self-hate, so that the person is constantly in a flashback to the abandonment, depression, feeling afraid, ashamed, and and depressed. Mm. And this tends to um, create a situation where the person is also really afraid of other people. And so there's a tremendous developmental arrest of the ability to be comforted by people, to be comfortable around people. It's almost to the level of social phobia. Lots of survivors learn how to control it and not show it, but find it very difficult to, to be in interaction you know, until they get some recovery from it. And then one further thing on the relationship with the self, the two biggest characteristics of it and the things that I work, that are major themes of therapy is the developmental arrest of self-compassion and the developmental arrest of self-protection. And when you have no capacity to say no, to set boundaries, 
the world's a really scary place. And when you have mm-hmm. no compassion for yourself, then you basically feeling fatally flawed, deficient, and ashamed all the time. Pete, just listening here, I won't say I'm getting triggered, but I'm getting upset just imagining the lives of so many innocent, vulnerable, precious, beautiful kids growing up in environments like you've described. And by the way, your description is one of the very best succinct summaries I've ever heard of this whole territory. And I'm struck by, I'll just say it back to you, and I'm open to correction here. I'm struck by both the distinction from classic PTSD is typically kind of essentially framed as an event occurs of some kind or another in which there is the horrible, overwhelming presence of the bad. Yes. Like a physical assault, a sexual assault, an explosion going off, a car accident, something like that. What you're describing in terms of um, childhood, first, are repeated episodes, not single episodes. Second, there's certainly the presence of the bad, shaming, physical abuse, maybe sexual abuse. And in particular, there is the absence of the good. There is the absence of external nurturance, protection, provision, alliance with the kid, and the lack of the internalization over time in the child also of the good to develop resources inside, like you said, in terms of um, self-compassion and self-protection. So it's just a really stunning package here. And I wanted to kind of underscore what I find that people, in my experience, certainly myself personally, underestimate sometimes the effect of, which is the impact of the absence of the good. You know, we tend to highlight the presence of the bad because it's conspicuous, but the absence of the good. And I wondered if you could just maybe make it a little more concrete and also invite people into uh, reflecting on their own childhoods, uh, both those who've had, you know, truly complex PTSD generative type childhoods and those like myself who didn't have the intensity of those features, but there's still certain things that people like me can identify with and, um, and learn from. Yeah, I very really well put, Rick. And uh, I was touched by you being touched by what <laughs> what I experienced as an epidemic of this. That's just just getting worse and and more widespread. And it might help listeners to think about CPTSD as being on a continuum. You know, there's degrees of being abused and neglected in childhood, and even just neglect itself. You know, knowing that there's nobody you can go to when you're scared. When you need something, when you're hurting, it's traumatizing, especially when you're really little. So, you know, many people may not feel like they have CPTSD, but they may have that kind of element of it. And so I think that says a lot. Coming back to your great point about um, the absence of the good, what we often see with people with CPTSD is this crippling black and white thinking, all or none thinking. And and the all or none thinking is is often I'm all bad. If something bad happens, it's because I'm all bad. There's usually, there's usually a narcissistic parent who insists on being the all good one who never makes a mistake and never does anything wrong, which is, sets up this kind of dilemma where the child just feels worthless, defective, fatally flawed. I had all this time. I grew up in one of these environments. I had all of that, and it's stubborn, and it only gradually decreases. You know, usually through the help of a therapist or 
a recovery group or if you're lucky, a, a best friend or, or a lover who's got it to give, which is empathy. And particularly empathy to the child when they're hurting. Because this is one of the great, another great developmental rest that happens is that pain of any kind, you, you identify it as, as the cause of your badness, is what makes you bad. And so, you, so this is the third key feature I see in the difference with CPTSD. This in, incredibly virulent, totalitarian inner critic, it's as if the superego takes over, learns the rules of society, pushes out any room for the healthy ego, the healthy self to grow. And it's all, survival is all about rooting out what's wrong with you, being quick to notice it, being hypervigilant for anything you could do to get in trouble, drasticizing and catastrophizing about what's about to happen. And it's just all negative focusing. And so that's kind of what one of the things I try and work with people a lot is to just see how through no fault of their own to survive, they had to adopt this psychological and cognitive process of just noticing themselves in a negative way in hope that they could fix it and then maybe at least be safe, if not get some kind of appreciation and sense of belonging. But of course, that never happens. And so, you know, the the despair and the futility just grows and grows. So I want I want to underline a couple of things you said, Pete, in passing, and kind of unpack them for a general audience here. One is this thing that happens in which the child, I'll put it a certain way, blames herself, blames himself, oneself for pain or for the circumstances. I think sometimes that kids have this fateful choice to make between basically they're crazy or I'm crazy, they're bad or I'm bad, something's wrong with them, something's wrong with me. And most kids make the understandable but unfortunate choice of personalizing it and feeling that they're the ones who must be bad, must be worthless, must be defective. Otherwise, you know, the world would not be treating them in that way, including their parents, including particularly parents, as you said, who are narcissistic, who pretend to be all-knowing and wonderful and so forth. So there's that sense of, of taking it on oneself, which then becomes, as you put it, I thought just brilliantly right there, that people, when they start to feel bad today about something, they're upset about something today, they're sad, they feel hurt, they're angry about something today, that then fast-tracks right into feeling like a bad person, all right? And that's just terrible and devastating and burdensome. So that's one thing I wanted to underline, the conflation or the personalization of a crappy environment around you to somehow feeling, oh, I must be crappy. Second thing you underline, the notion of developmental arrest. So it's like you get stuck. We get stuck in certain ways and a normal it may not be average, but it would be normal. In other words, the like the healthy developmental trajectory moves through these stages so that kids learn and acquire capacities that they can then have as adults. But if you don't have a chance to acquire, let's say, normal developmental, healthy developmental self-compassion or differentiation between they're crazy, but I'm not crazy, let's say, then those developments get arrested and the person is outwardly able to function in adult ways in certain settings. But then if they are drawn into a compartment of their mind, like in an intimate personal relationship or where they're grappling with certain feelings coming up for themselves, 
it's like there's no foundation. There's no flooring beneath them. And when they're in that compartment, boom, they're developmentally three years old or 13 years old or three days or months old. Even in advanced kind of recovery, it's so, I, I like the compartmental analogy. No matter how much recovery you got from this stuff, you can get you get triggered by you know somebody that just looks just like your father or says the same kind of thing or turns their back on you like your mother or you know whatever it was, and bam you're in a flashback and it's almost as if your left brain turns off. You can't access all the learning you've got, all the ability that you've developed to notice yourself in a positive way to shift your perspective from negative noticing to positive noticing, and it just kind of like, kind of goes away and. Like Eric Erickson said, Eric Erickson said a long time ago, shame is blame turned against the self. And I just love that equation. And um, you can't blame the parents. You know, you're know, you going to get the worst punishment for that. So you start blaming yourself. And while I'm here, I'll just make a, a quick aphorism about it. The only, the only way to get out of that, and this is where my work may differ from a lot of people, is to recover your healthy anger about what happened to you and to, For sure. to recover an inner voice when you're in a flashback that goes, no, dad, don't you call me that name. That's not okay. You should shut up, dad. Don't talk to me that way. It's you. It's not me. I'm a good boy. The anger is the thing that gets most traumatized in kids. So helping somebody get their healthy anger back to get aligned with the healthy instinct of self-protection, which was eradicated in their family, it, it can take years but it's really holy work. I want to keep on going with what you're talking about here, Pete, because I think it's kind of the central topic that we're we're getting our way towards. A recovery from complex PTSD is, pardon the pun, pretty complex. Uh, And one of the (laughs) things that I really appreciate about your framing during kind of this whole conversation is that this is a lifelong process and it's got a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of stuff going on. That said, you've worked with a lot of people over the years, and as you were saying earlier, you've also created a lot of material that people can consume, and we'll definitely link to some of that in the description of today's episode if you want to check it out more. So what are a few of the categories of things that you've seen make a really big difference for people? You've named two so far that I can think of. The first, you were talking about having a really empathic partner who can kind of show empathy to you that maybe you didn't receive when you were a child. And right then, what I thought you were saying about uh, kind of reclaiming healthy anger was awesome, and I would love it if you kind of kept going with that. Yeah, a process I use over and over in therapy with people is when therapy is working well and there's some relational repair where trust is beginning to grow with me, with the therapist, then the client can often come into what I come in with what I like to see as a therapeutic flashback. The session was great last time. They were nice to me this time. When I was in therapy, I was going three times a week for five years. For four years, every time, 10 minutes, no matter how good I was doing, 10 minutes before session, I was sure this was going to be the one where I was going to get clobbered. And being able to talk about that with a therapist and be reassured that it was a normal response and and have some empathy about it was incredibly healing. So around that stuff, I've developed a a reparenting process, which with people that go far with recovery, becomes a self-reparenting process. You catch yourself in a flashback. You try and you try and contact the child in you and ask the child 
what are you just, what are you remembering right now? What does this remind you of? Uh, you know, it can be enhanced by feeling the sensation in your body. Something's just tightened up, feeling into that. Sometimes a memory will come, or sometimes it's a phrase that the parent said. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm being told about that. So, wow, my God, I can't believe she said that to you. Oh, my God. That was, she, should, she should have been arrested. She should have been, you know, she should have been forced <laughs> into therapy. What a terrible thing. So I'm modeling the anger. And mm, gradually mm-hmm. over time, you know, they, they join in. You know, I've had a lot of people join in, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of people not get very far, including myself for a decade, with simple thought stopping and thought substitution until I added this anger piece. Uh, Pete, I, I just want to jump in. Sorry to cut you off, but I have, a, I have a process question about this that I'm really fascinated by. Let's say that you're working with a client in the office and they're clearly classic CPTSD, no doubt about it, and they had this abusive relationship from, let's say, theoretically, a father. Um, and they're telling you this first story and you're modeling that like appropriate anger to them most of the time, do they join with you there or are they defensive about it? It's a process. And, yeah. and so if, if I do it too early, they're defensive about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what I was going to guess is that it's, it's funny that instinct to like defend the parent. In oh a way. yeah. It's huge. So a lot of the, you know, there, there's levels to the work cognitive level. And then there's a lot of work on the cognitive, just psychoeducation about this process before you before I can get to the actual emotional level where we can really invoke the healthy anger at the parent. Mm. And it can take a really long time, but there's a lot yeah. of education about denial and minimization and and I, and a lot of back and off. You know, I, I may get a response from somebody like, okay, we'll come back here in three months or six months. Mm. You know, it's just it's just too soon. Um, but yeah, I, I find that a lot of clients eventually start opening to it and, you know, and there's degrees of it. Maybe they can just do a little bit of it. Maybe they, I, I remember one woman I worked with for, for a couple of years, she couldn't even imagine saying no mm. without just dissociating and being gone. That, tra- that traumatizing. And no is a really bad word for a child to say to a narcissist. They reserve their most intense punishment and rejection for that word. So people that get polarized into a codependent or foreign response from their, their trauma, they've had this stuff traumatized out of themselves big time. So the recovery curve can, can be really long to get to that level. And let me just say, I was talking about this as a two-step process. And so the, with the process, and I'm using this say now with somebody that's you know quite along with the process and, and they're, they're internalizing it. So the first step is to, so I catch them saying, calling themselves stupid. I may, I may have to work with calling yourself stupid a hundred times before they get it and you know, tracing it back and, and then finally getting a little bit annoyed that well, I can't believe how ingrained that is. They must've just said that to you all the time. What an awful thing to do to a child. Then we'll turn to step two, which is the development of the other, the most basic element of self-esteem, of self-confidence, self-compassion, which is maybe the foundation of all recovery is being able to be compassionate. The, the, the long-term goal is to be compassionate with yourself no matter what, no matter how big a mistake you've made. And so in the process of moving towards that child, then I will model like, oh man, I'm just, God, I can, I, I can just see. 
I think I think I just feel like I can see that child you were. And sometimes I, I think I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I I oh she was just all tightened. I'm so scared and oh god. And I these these days these last five years or so, I, and my therapist did this to me, which is where I where I learned it. She teared up with me when I was in in that place one time. And it just was like magic. It was just kind of like my trust level just zoomed. I couldn't believe it. And so I do that now quite a lot with people. I've only had one pe- person in 30 years get freaked out by it. And we processed it into some good therapy. But people are so moved by that. And it, I'm not making it up. It's just, you know, it, I think one of the great tools for finding your empathy when you're working with clients is just put yourself in the shoes of that person. Can you, do you have any experience that reminds you of that? And fortunately and unfortunately for me, I have plenty <laughs> of them. And it, you know, it allows me to be really authentic in the way that I express compassion for that child. And so, you know, there may be five or 10 examples of that. And maybe on the 10th one, they start tearing up too for the child and something starts to shift where they can really see the innocence of the child and, and the worthiness of, of some compassion. Anyone who's listening to a show like ours knows mental health challenges are a part of life, but they don't have to define who you are. If you're navigating something difficult, one of the best things you can do is get some high-quality help, and the Dr. John Delaney Show is a great place to go for that. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy Dr. John's show. It was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has really a very cool format. Real people call into the show and he walks them through how to make good choices related to difficult situations and common challenges, like facing depression, overcoming anxiety, or connecting with other people. You can send them your questions by leaving a voicemail at 844-693-3291 or emailing askjohn at ramseysolutions.com. It's a great resource for people and a really nice compliment to the work we do here on Being Well. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. 
The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. You've probably heard the phrase corrective emotional experiences. There you go. <laughs> this kind of fancy schmancy title for, um, the way I would put it more colloquially, taking in the good. In other words, mm-hmm. giving an opportunity yourself today as an adult to have again and again and again, I think of it as 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time, nice. reparative positive experiences yep. to heal the wounds and also in particular to grow more of the good inside yourself, more the good of self-compassion, the good of being able to differentiate yourself from your nutty parents, you know, the good of putting things in perspective, the good of getting on your own side to grow that inside yourself. And it's interesting for me as a therapist how striking it is that often the learning curve for people who are suffering a lot is still very shallow in a lot of ordinary therapy. It's pretty shallow. There isn't that much internalization of corrective emotional experiences. People are having them with the therapist, but they're not learning from them. They're not hardwiring those positive experiences into their own nervous systems. And I just kind of wondered what you saw helped people to open to the good that's real so that it does get internalized rather than mistrusting it or pushing it away or afraid of getting their hopes up to be betrayed yet again, which of course would happen again and again and again as kids. What are the barriers, in other words, to the internalization, the growing of positive resources inside? And how do you help people deal with those barriers? Very well put. Very good question. I see one of the key, I see relational healing as being the key process in therapy. And I always say key process about a bunch of things. And then, you know, so it's a key chain, you know, just like, but, but without. (laughs) Everything's a key process. Yeah, really. (laughs) Well, people have like a dozen keys, you know, that's cool. I always thought that when I was a kid, the janitors were the most powerful people because they had all the keys. That's that's why I was impressed by that as well. Yeah. God, looking for those keys. Yeah. So, um. The basis of recovery for the client themselves is the development of the self-compassion. The basis of helping the recovery is genuine empathy from the therapist and patients. And I think it can be hard for a lot of therapists who, don't, who haven't had any trauma to really understand how stubborn and ingrained this toxic critic is that's constantly yeah. beating them up. And I've just had numerous people write to me about how shamed they were by a therapist because after four weeks, six mm. weeks, sometimes a year or two years um, of not getting totally over the inner critic, they were shamed and, and, and the therapist got mad at them. It, it, incredibly common, common experience. 
So there's got to be this kind of empathy that understands that when, when it's going slow, it's going slow. To me, when I, the slower it goes, my, my, my psyche, and I'm often getting pictures of it, it's kind of like, wow, hey, this person had it even worse than I thought as a kid. I think there's probably a lot more that we haven't gotten to here. I think, oh, man, this is so intense. I bet there's, there was some pretty intense sexual abuse, which sexual abuse is really hard because it conflates love with abuse and creates this incredible connection between the two that it's so hard to open up to love and kindness because of, of it's in, instantly triggered into the fear that you're going to be exploited. And let me just say one more thing to something that uh, was said a couple, a few, few minutes back there. One of the final frontiers in this recovery is accepting the thing that this is lifetime work. And I was, mm. I was working on mine for consciously for about 20 years before I've, before I finally put to death my salvation fantasy. My salvation fantasy helped me so long over 40 years. I just tried every kind of therapy and philosophical approach. And, you know, it's really, and it's good because it really informed me, but it led to many kind of heartbreaks when some new adapted short-term fix didn't work. And when I finally got to that, that frontier where I really, really got that I am never going to be totally free of flashbacks. I have right now decreased them 90%, increased the frequency, the intensity, and the duration. But I'll get a period of going a couple months without one, and then all of a sudden I get one. And in the past, that would mean I'd, be, I'd go right back into that little compartment like, what an imposter I am. What, oh, who am I bullshitting? Why am I helping people? I didn't get rid of And, you know, and then through practice and stuff, I pull myself back. I rescue myself. I'll shut up, Helen and Charlie, my parents. <laughs> You've come so far. You've got so much better life than they are. You've got so many good things in your life. But it's a hard place for people to get to. And, and, and I, had, I knew it for a long time, but it's really hard to give it up. <clears throat> but when you have that kind of really empath, you know, deeply empathic relationship with yourself and patience with yourself, then when you get a flashback, you're not going to go into self-disappointment. You're going to go into, you're going to pulling out that keychain with all those keys and trying to find one, you know, the ones that fit the particular lock that's happening right now to rescue yourself. Thank you for that, Pete. Yeah, no, I think that was actually really lovely. One of the words that you've mentioned a couple of times during this conversation, we've sort of made allusion to it as well, is reparenting. Um, that's mm -hmm. probably a word that people listening may or may not be familiar with. Could you kind of describe what that is and how that intersects with that uh, really brutal inner critic you were talking about before? I'll preface it by saying that there's two chapters in my Tao of Fully Feeling book on reparenting, one on identifying the different kinds of abuse and neglect that is cognitive, spiritual, emotional, physical, uh, five, and relational. And then there's a chapter on self-reparenting. And I got a, a lot of my stuff on uh, reparenting from John Bradshaw, who I, I think was a real light in this field in terms of helping people understand that there are a lot of dysfunctional families out there. There are a lot of kids being traumatized. At any rate, to me, it's like a, a developmental arrest repair thing. At first, it just seemed, and for, for a lot of men, it's, it's a really hard concept to imagine that there's some little child in there that you got to be soft and cuddly with. And it was for me at first. 
but I was at a John Bradshaw work, workshop where called Reclaiming Reclaiming the Inner Child, and there's about 500 people in there and a lot of men. And he did this guided meditation back to seeing that inner child in a really difficult situation, stuck in the abandonment, hate himself, and then just started pouring love and compassion on, on that child and instructing us to do that. And there were 500 people, maybe 495, crying their heads off, including me. And and all these men, I've never seen so many men cry. It was just stunning. And it had such a powerful effect on me that I started just using that a lot, doing workshops on it with people. And I just see that it's very, very a powerful process, which begins with being able to identify developmental arrest, to identify the kinds of love that you didn't get, to identify the kinds of abuse that you didn't get. And so as the reparenter introducing this process, I'm the witness of it. I'm the, the educator of it. I'm the encourager and I'm the coach. And Showing you how to do it and demonstrating real, you know, really emotionally grounded empathy to you while you're in that place. And I've just seen people learn how to do that, you know, and gradually I'll tell them at the end of the set, that was really great. We went back to that and I was just so amazed that you actually got some real anger out about that. That's great. I hope you'll be willing to practice some of that. It's okay if you don't. And I just love how you opened your heart to that little kid. It was so touching to me. It made me cry. It was just, it was just really wonderful. Mm. And, and just building, it's, you know, it's kind of a, a long-term process. You know, they can leave therapy when they're pretty good at that process. When they, that process is growing of its own accord, isn't, it's the good that's implanted in them. Self-mothering and self-fathering, becoming those good figures that were never there. Yeah. And gradually gaining more, more and more access to it, particularly in times when you most need it, which is takes a lot of practice because it's so easy to forget then and go back into the abandonment depression. Yeah, Pete, this is something that's hard to generalize about, but it's a question that often comes up for people about um, after they've done some therapeutic work, say, on their their issues, their CP, CPTSD kind of issues, let's say, what sort of relationships do they continue to have with their family of origin or none at all? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Yeah. So you named, as soon as you named your own parents, I immediately thought of them and I wondered, oh, gee, hmm, are they still alive? Does Pete talk to them? What about other siblings who maybe sometimes denied what really happened or other relatives, you know, denied what really happened to you, but you know what happened to you? So do you have any guidelines or suggestions for people about this topic? Boy, do I ever. And, and it is a big part of the therapy and it's very delicate, as you can imagine. Yeah. And an individual. Yeah. And and very individual. Very individual. Yeah, there's people I know that don't even go near it. And you know, maybe maybe after we do two years' work, I'll I'll get to the place where I can start talking about I've noticed every time you come back from a visit over there, you're sick. You've got caught a cold, you got the flu and your back's out. And it just kinda and you, and you, all the stories you tell me, it just seems like the whole family was ganging up on you and you kind of been in, you've been going through a few weeks now of feeling pretty good about yourself. And you came back and boy, you just, we're into that old list of calling yourself a piece of shit and ugly. And, and it was just almost like, you know, you'd totally forgotten that what a good, good person you are and how you're getting there. So there, there's this movement in 
I'm so thrilled. There are so many good self-help groups online right now. There's a lot of energy now for hating narcissists, separating from narcissists, wanting to get any, blaming narcissists. And so there's one on, on Reddit. It's called reddit.com slash r slash raised by narcissists. And, peop- and, and, and the big hot topic in places like this is no contact. And I've just seen this over and over and over that to the degree that you cut, cut contact with a toxic narcissist, to that degree does your recovery progress. And I've seen people just, I've just had to grin and bear it for the first year or two because they can't get, they can't get in touch in an empathic way with their own pain. And they just keep going back for more. And, and this can happen. No contact is emails and it's phone call. I can see somebody get destroyed from a five-minute phone call from a particularly narcissistic parent that has not changed at all. And people are getting that more. And I've just, I've just observed it you know, for 30 years over and over. It's, it's like science to me. There's this strong repetition compulsion to keep going back to try mm. and get water from the empty well. But if it's an inveterate narcissist, rarely... Do they change? So I'm with kid gloves. I'm gradually nurturing the process and in a non all or none way um, and giving them permission to have longer periods of time in between phone calls or visits and then no, get it, helping them notice the difference in the few days before going home. Gee, it seems like you just kind of get really anxious and you can't sleep and there, and then, and then you come back and it's the same kind of thing. And, and you know, and finally they start to see that, and then it starts to connect with the burgeoning instinct of self-protection growing, and they're going, God, yeah, you know, I think I'm not going to go there so much. You know, some people are really emotionally brilliant at this, and they get it pretty quick, and they they just go total no contact in a way that really speeds up their recovery. I didn't do it consciously, but I didn't see my family for 11 years. And I came back and it was so sad to see how my three sisters were still in thrall to my parents. And they were, they were treating me like I was an adult and uh, res- with a lot of respect. So you can't get more, uh, more heavy trigger. You know, so same, same with PTSD. There's triggers that can put you into this emotional flashback. And there's nothing more heavy than being around the parent and them still treating you the same way. And you, it's so easy to go back into just feeling totally unsafe, unsafe, totally blamable, and totally freaked out you know, and dissociated. To what extent? I mean, this is a huge question, and I think there, at one end of the spectrum, there are parents who are just evil, and mm-hmm. evil through and through. So you imagine a parent, a person like a mosaic with a hundred tiles, you know, ten by ten mosaic. And some parents, I think they're rare, but they're real. They are just evil through and through. Every one of those tiles is bright red, let's say. Nicely put. Typical parent, yeah, even a parent who's really pretty messed up, they've got at least a few green tiles mixed in with uh-huh. a lot of red. And then you have other people where it's, you know, it's a mixed bag, but there are circumstances pulled the red out of them, let's say, and really intensified it, da 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 da, da. So now you're an adult and you're trying to come to terms with the parenting you got and a lot of which you've internalized. You've got your parents inside you in some ways. Absolutely. So how can you appreciate, in my metaphor, the green tiles of the internalized parent 
who is part of you now, woven into the fabric of your own psyche, uh, while not denying the other 99 bright red tiles that wounded you profoundly? Well, I think if it was 99 to 1, you I don't know if you could, yeah. but... 90, 10, <laughs> yeah, you but know, maybe 55, 10. 45, 60, 40, 80, 20. Yeah, yeah, I have a concept in my Dow Fully Feeling book. I have a lot about forgiveness. The first book I wrote was in reaction to forgiveness as a panacea, forgiveness as a salvation fantasy, and just seeing clients get slaughtered every time they went home thinking they were forgiving. And it's not really deep forgiving. It's just kind of surrender. Yeah. And so I have this concept that I call forgiveness from a distance. And, and I feel this towards my parents. They're, they're dead now. And, um, and boy, I sure feel a lot safer with them not, not being alive on this plane. But I, b- before they died, I just I got to a place of feeling. I've, Can I, felt I interrupt for, you, Pete? I got to ask you. You're a, an adult. You have an advanced degree. You're licensed. You're independent. And I'm sure you don't see you, your parents very often. You're willing to be away from them for 11 years. And yet still... The fact that they're no longer alive helps you feel safer in this life. Can you speak to that? Because there's a little kid in me that is, you know, a very big part of me. Yeah. A little kid that ran the show for many years. And I, I, I had a lot of recovery and I could come home. I had, I maybe, when my father was still alive, I'd see him once every two years, talk to him twice on the phone during that time. And I, if I come home and I, put the answering machine on and I hear his voice and total physical flashback in, into the sympathetic nervous system, into the fight. Yeah, fingers in the wall socket. Fingers I, in I, the I, wall socket, yeah. <laughs> and then and then in miserable, while I figured out how, while I procrastinated calling back and, you know, just perseverated about how to handle it and how could I get out of the contact and I could just never be comfortable around him. Yeah. Yeah, and so no, I get it. And, and so it's true for a lot of people. Yeah, and I want to underscore, like for me, the I'm, I probably wasn't as clear as I should have been. I didn't mean it critically or doubtfully. I, it was more like a way of really appreciating the impact of our history. You know, Forrest and I wrote the book Resilient, and we talked about the ways in which the brain is designed to be changed by our experiences, especially if they're negative, and especially if they happen in childhood, and especially, especially negative ones in childhood involving other people. So we're designed to be really affected by these things, right? And so here you are, an adult, successful, independent person, and still you hear your father's voice on that phone, yeah. draws you right back. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't experience that as critical. I was saying that for the benefit of listeners, because yeah, this, I find, is a very, this is the most defended place that people have. And, you, you know, the, I, I could never let go of, the child in me could never let go of the hope that one day they would repent or they would just even, you know, really see me in a positive way. And until they die, you can't, it's, it's hard to give that up. But what you spoke to the- And also just to make the point, you know, if they could do it once, they could do it again. And they did it more than once when you were young. And so here they are. Yes. They're still walking around this earth. They could call you at any time. So you're, it's like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? It could always drop. You never know. Particularly when they're still narcissistic and there's still yeah. a lot of anger and contempt in, in the way they talk. It may not even be at you. But the main, the, the, so that, that, this, uh, it's a Judith Herman thing, who's the person that coined complex PTSD, to get safety is the first step, which means just 
getting no contact with your abuser, moving out of the home. I don't know if she went as far as to say that, but I'm pretty sure that's what she meant. But so that's the first step. But the, the much bigger step is the relationship you have with your internalized mother and father. Yeah. And recognizing them when they're in charge, because basically that's what your inner critic is. You know, it's a combination mm. of whoever your early abuses were. And when they show yeah. up in toxic form, the quicker you can recognize that and the quicker you can use your healthy anger and perception to say no and to tell them to piss off, the quicker you can shift back into this kind of self-compassion. Oh, oh you poor thing. You just got, you got really triggered and you're in that place again. And, and Helen and Charlie are, have taken over again and they're going to want to do, run their old number on you and give that big laundry list of all your faults and defects. No way. Hmm. For me, just getting back to, for just one second, to something you said about forgiveness, there's a fundamental question of like, who's, who are you giving the forgiveness for? You know, because I think that, as you were saying, there's sort of this wish that we might have that the, the parental figure, the abuser, however we want to frame it, um, is going to repent, as you were saying, the kind of repentous salvation fantasy. So are you giving forgiveness because like you want them still as the appeasing child to feel better on some level? Do you want to kind of echolocate those 20 tiles in the 100 tile mosaic for the sake of like finding the good element of their individual personhood? Or are you giving it for yourself? Are you giving it as a way to, you know, feel separation, as you were saying, forgiveness from a distance? And like those are the elements of forgiveness that I think can be a really powerful healing tool, a really powerful um, way to kind of disentangle yourself from that moment of trauma. But if you're doing it to kind of, I don't know, appease some version of them, some fantasy of them that still exists inside of your mind, that's probably where you're more getting into trouble. Well said. Or you're perpetuating those negative cycles. Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. And yeah. And it, sometimes it's hard to know. And mm. sometimes, you know, it's a bit of both, but with healthy development, it's, it's growing. It's a growing part of you that knows that they're still not safe mm. and, and that yeah. can even hold the ambivalence. I love Carl Jung's thing. You know, that's one of the great characteristics of, of emotional intelligence is being able to hold our ambivalence as close in time as possible. So that I can have I, a lot of hate about the things that were done to me and the things that weren't given me, but I there's a place in me that has love for them, mm. especially now that they're now that they're they're dead. And, and I had it even before they were dead, but I just I can't be around them because they're not they're not changed enough. I think that's a great distinction, Pete. And as we kind of get toward the end here, uh, there's a question that we ask everybody who comes on the show. I'm particularly fascinated by your answer to it uh, based on everything that we've talked about so far today. And it's very simple. Um, I think it was maybe built for this conversation by accident. But uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and to talk to yourself as a child, as a young adult, somebody going through the experiences we've talked about today, uh, what would you want to say to that person? I, I, I've done this a million times. And I just say you're you're such a good boy. You're just so smart and you're so resilient and you got a good heart and you're um just a, a a very good and lovely person and I'm so sorry you're trapped here in this in this terrible family with these and I have cried for my parents many times. I which is why I have forgiveness from a distance. I cry for how horribly they had it and how they got CPTSD. And I can 
feel forgiveness towards them that, but it, it's got to have boundaries in it. But and so and then I say to my say to him, and um, if if I had one wish, if I got that that genie's lantern, I would go back right now in time and bring you back into the present with me, so that you can live with me and Sarah and Jaden and be a part of our family. Wow. Hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, Pete. Like this has been honestly really personally touching and I've just really appreciated uh, all of the insight that you've shared here today. Thank you so much, Farsa, And thank you, Rick. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity and your questions were great and your expansions on things that I talked about were great and enlightening in some kinds of, in some instances. And uh, I really commend you for the great work that you're doing with this program. Oh, thank you. And I would just like to add one quick thing, which I bet you would add as well, Pete, which is, I mean, right now, I feel fairly haunted by what we've been talking about here. And want to say that um, almost all of us know some kids of different ages, teenagers and even younger kids. And it's just worth asking ourselves, is there a kid you know where something not entirely good is happening in their life. And without making it worse, is there anything you might be able to do to help? And as you know, a lot of the research on this shows that if if a kid, even in a really crummy situation, has one person or even a few interactions with adults who see the good in the kid, who affirm it, who in appropriate ways, acknowledge the crappiness of what the kid's got to deal with and speaks up about the future, that there will be a time, you will get to the other side of this and, and et cetera, et cetera. Whoever it might be, a rabbi, a baseball coach, a neighbor, a teacher makes a casual remark. I mean, I was really served by a handful of remarks key teachers made to me as that were one-off comments that were revelatory. Like, what? You mean I was a different person than I thought I was. I was a good person. I was a capable person. What? Right? So I just want to kind of mention that as almost a call to action for all of us to recognize that it really does take a village to raise a child, including the village of adults who have their eyes open for 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 kids who may be in trouble. That is so well said. And I'll, and I'll try and be brief and just reinforcing that because you know I've seen thousands of people, traumatized people over the years, and I yeah. see this over and over and over. We're so resilient that kind of little tiny bits of somebody seeing the good in us and and giving empathy towards us have kept them alive, kept me alive. And it's 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 a wonderful thing. It's just a beautiful thing to pay it forward in that way. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. This was 10 out of 10 conversation. Totally love doing it with you today. So today we had a wonderful time talking with Pete Walker. I found our conversation really personally enlightening and moving. I had the good fortune of growing up in a family that was really very happy, very functional, very supportive parents, really a great environment. But I definitely had my challenges with kids at school, in middle school and high school. And it was kind of helpful as somebody who, you know, leans toward maybe being a little too regulated sometimes, to think back to those incidents and start to reclaim inside of myself maybe a bit of a sense of healthy anger and injustice about what happened, rather than just kind of brushing it off and saying, oh, you know, it was normal kid stuff. 
And that was based on one of Pete's primary recommendations during the conversation, that it is possible for us as adults to reclaim a sense of healthy anger about the things that happened to us as children. There's a natural tendency to ally with the parental figure inside of our own minds. It's kind of a residue of our three-year-old selves looking at our parents as these infallible figures who couldn't possibly do anything wrong. And because bad things were happening to us and the parent can't do any wrong, therefore we must be wrong and it must be our own fault. Pete had a wonderful line during the conversation that really stuck with me. Your inner critic is a combination of whoever your early abusers were. And there was something about that that I just found so resonant and so poignant. The second core recommendation that Pete had was around reparenting, basically giving ourselves the nurturing, loving attention as adults that we weren't able to receive while we were children. Or as Rick likes to say, we take in the good. We find those 10,000 moments, 10 seconds at a time to really take in a good experience and have it land in us, hopefully eventually over time becoming a lasting change in our brain. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Pete. If you did enjoy the conversation, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to subscribe to the podcast and hey, maybe tell a friend about it. The podcast has been growing a lot with your support. It's been awesome to see. We actually recently crossed a million downloads this year, which is something that I am super proud of. And it's something that couldn't possibly happen without your help. Also, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. If you become a patron, you support the show. That's the most important thing you're doing. And also, you'll receive a couple of benefits in return. If you subscribe at one tier, you'll receive bonus show notes and our Just One Thing short episodes. If you subscribe at another, you'll get all of that. And then you'll also get a monthly Q&A where Rick and I have a conversation that answers listener questions. Also, if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review in the iTunes store. It really helps other people find the podcast. So that's all for this week. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon.